This is episode six of the Chalk Dinosaur Podcast. And today is going to be the first episode of many that I'm going to be labeling as PT with CD. And that stands for Production Techniques with Chalk Dinosaur or Production Theory with Chalk Dinosaur. So these are going to be geared very specifically towards people who are making music. So uh, I wanted to label them all clearly so that people who who don't do that uh, will know that it's probably going to get really technical and really into the details about the gear, the techniques, and it, it you know, it'll probably be boring to somebody who isn't familiar with uh, what I'm talking about. But, you know, some of the theory-based ones will might be interesting, I don't know. Anyway, this one's for uh, people who make music out there. So today, what I was going to talk about was uh, being prolific, uh, production, um, yeah, just uh, how to be prolific. And uh, when I talk about this this stuff, bear in mind, you know, I'm still 100% uh, learning and trying to improve and uh, very much have a lot to learn in anything that I'm going to be talking about. But this is one of the areas, uh, music production, that I do have a lot of experience in that I can share. So uh, keep that in mind here. Take what I say and uh, see what works for you. Don't, uh, I'm not trying to sound like a freaking know-it-all here. But anyway... One of the things, not to toot my own Bjorn, that's been kind of a a notable feature of my career has been the amount of music that I've produced. Uh, I just released the 18th album for Chalk Dinosaur, and then separately from that, I work as a freelance composer, uh, and I do music for underscore music for tv shows so it's uh the the background music so not counting the chalk dinosaur recordings this past month i just completed my 1000th audio recording and uh i love i upload every one of these onto johnohalloran.com so if you're ever curious that's where i upload everything that i produce so the vast, vast majority of the music I'm making is for, you know, my job. And Chalk Dinosaur is on top of that. So I do feel like I have some some valid uh, ideas about prolificity. Is that a word? I don't know. I don't know. I just have, I have experience in this and I, I feel like of the many topics that I talk about on this podcast, this one is maybe the only one that... <laughs> I actually feel somewhat qualified to to share my opinions on. So anyway, a lot of a lot of uh, people who write songs, a lot of people who make music. There's a big hurdle. There's a big roadblock in that they cannot seem to finish their ideas, and they they don't. Uh, they're just not producing much. They might be working on it a lot, but they're not finishing ideas and they're not, not, they don't have the, the output. 
the the turnover, and it's a really difficult part of music for a lot of reasons. Uh, and I think you know the biggest one is all of our all of our own sense of perfectionism and not being satisfied with what we're making or or, or feeling that something we're doing isn't good enough in some way to, to share or to even, I don't know. I think the biggest hurdle for people in terms of finishing their ideas and, and being able to create output is the ability to accept ideas and accept flaws, finish the idea and move on. But the, the hardest part for a lot of people, I think is accepting the flaws and some people just can't accept the fact that it's not perfect and then they never finish it. So what are... I'll just explain a little bit about my path with uh, creating music and how... And the kind of approach I took that I think really helped to get on the right mindset for for creating music. And that's this idea that's very common in the arts, I believe, that if you want quality, you need quantity. Um, you know, to get better at something to learn, you just have to create a lot. And, you know, out of a hundred ideas, you know, they're obviously not all going to be great ideas, but there are going to be some good ones in there. But if you if you spend all your time trying to come up with one great idea, it's going to be, there's no contest. So, you know, one of the, my pottery teacher in high school, Mr. Tenace, uh, he gave me a very good insight, a very good piece of advice. I think he was addressing the whole class. But he kind of just introduced me to that theory, or, you know, that approach. And he said, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along the lines of, you know, if you want to make a great pot, don't try to make one great pot, just make a thousand pots. I don't know if he said a thousand, but, you know, just make, we'll say a hundred, that's a little more realistic. Just make a hundred pots. No, no, it's not. You could you can make a thousand pots. Anyway, don't try to make the perfect one. Just make a thousand and don't worry if they're perfect because with each thing that you complete and each time you go through that whole process from beginning to end you learn things and you get better at making the small decisions and choices that get you to the finish line where you can feel like all right this is done so anyway that came into play for sure big time whenever i started making my own recordings, uh, whenever I got really into making my own record, like I, I'd always kind of been messing around with recordings, but completely just, just for fun when I was younger, just on Microsoft sound recorder, just like slowing down audio. And then they had the reverse function. So I would always try and say sentences in reverse and then reverse it and see what, if it sounded like English. Anyway, when I started making like musical recordings and got real obsessed with that, there was a, you know, I took that approach. I was like, all right, I'm just going to try and make a song that is complete. I wasn't trying to make like, 
an amazing song. I was just trying to make a song that was complete. Like, what does it need to be complete? You know, in my head at the time, I was like, all right, needs needs some words. Needs like verse, chorus. And if you go back and listen to my first 20 or 30 songs that I wrote and recorded, uh, you know, I was just writing lyrics to have lyrics in the song. I wasn't writing from a, a personal place or any kind of personal experience. I was just writing words that sounded like a song to me. I'm like, what words would be in a song? That's how I was writing words at the time. And if you go back and listen on johnohalloran.com to, you know, my first 20 or 30 songs, they're very uncomfortable for me to listen to around other people because they're the lyrical content and the vocal performance are bad uh, in my in my ears. Like, it's embarrassing. But at the same time, it's encouraging because, uh, you know, after more time, you know, just steadily got better as I learned how how to write better and how to record better. And it was just a very steady and gradual increase. But yeah, listen to those first ones and it's, it's, uh, it's not pretty for me. I enjoy listening to them by myself. <laughs> Because, you know, even though the words and vocals are, are were not good uh, or were embarrassing to me, there was always, a, you know, some element of every recording that I made that I liked. Um, in the earlier songs, it was usually the instrumental aspects of the recording that, you know, there'd be something about it that I liked. And yeah, it, with every... So I was just trying to complete a song, not overthink it not get so nitpicky with it just make it get it to the point of feeling like a complete song as fast as i could and then moving on to the next one and applying the things that i had maybe observed or learned in the previous song applying that knowledge to the next process starting over from scratch and uh, just going through that process of beginning to end uh, over and over, um, that that's the key. And the key to being able to do that is being able to let go of the feeling that the, the song is not good enough. There's just no way around the output. You need the output to learn and uh, to advance. And uh, so... Yeah, it was just very gradual. Every song learned a little something that I could put towards the next song. And what I found was that the more you're doing this, or the more I was doing this, the more ideas I was trying to come up with and finish, the more ideas I would get. So it was as if, you know, spending time in that space kind of propagated more ideas and made that flow, that like creative channel a lot more open so that you know, at a certain point, it was not difficult to finish songs. Um, and, you know, it it has gotten harder as I've gotten, as I feel like I've improved because the standard is higher. Uh, but at the same time, I also feel like it's, that it's only harder because of the, the 
it's harder to fight off the perfectionism aspect and being able to let go of things that maybe aren't, you know, perfect. Not that anything's perfect, but, um, but you know, the actual formulation of the ideas is still, still pretty, pretty easy. And it comes from being in a place where you're trying to come up with ideas and you're trying to finish something. Uh, yeah. And the more you're there, the easier it'll be to get what to, you know, finish the ideas. Um, and yeah, so I was doing that for a few years. Let's see, that was 2007. I started doing that. So I was just constantly, you know, trying to complete as many pieces of music as I could that, that were complete or felt complete to me. So yeah, spend maybe a week on, on one song, spend a week on the recording, like, uh, and I would usually write as I was recording. So I would just put a drum loop down in GarageBand. Then I'd record a chord progression. And then I'd, you know, have a different drum loop for, you know, the chorus or a different part of the song. Or even I'd just keep the same drum loop going for the whole thing. But it's really just like make one chord progression for the verse. Make a different chord progression for the chorus. And then just alternate between the two write two verses, write two, write two verses, write a chorus, maybe write a bridge. The, my, my songwriting structures got started to get more complex and have gotten much more complex now compared to where they were when I started, but they don't, you know, they don't need to be by any means to, to make a good song. And when I started out, it was really just A, B, A, B, A, B, B. There's, you know, it was just very, very simple. And just focusing on make a complete song and then move on and start a new idea because starting a new idea is so much fun. That's probably, that's one of my favorite things to do is just to have a blank, nothing and start a fresh idea, fresh chance to try and make something really awesome try uh, an opportunity to try and do everything right uh you know and there's always stuff that when you're done with the song you're like all right that was good but i wish or you know for the next song i think i'm going to try and make something with a little more space in it or make something yeah just any kind of observation about about anything about the song you just you just accumulate these with every time you go through the process. Anyway, where was I going? In 2012, I started doing the, the TV uh, music production, which really, really reinforced the quantity aspect of music for me. So, uh, you know, I'd be making music of all different styles, a lot of hip-hop, a lot of top 40, like dance, and uh, most of it's like hip-hop EDM, and then I've done a, a lot of kind of retro-modern, like chill-wave, synth-wave kind of stuff. Some R&B, uh, 
a little bit of world music, some sound beds. Anyway, just a big variety of different stuff. And with that work, you know, you you can't spend too much time trying to find the perfect hi-hat sound or if you get too lost in the details and and become too indecisive and perfectionistic about it, you're going to spend, it's going to take you way, way too long and it's not going to be worth your time. You know, you're not going to, the money is not going to equal the amount of time you're putting into it. And this line of work was actually really good for exercising, being able to let go of things and detach because it wasn't going to be released as Chalk Dinosaur. It was just going to be background music on a reality TV show. So it was just naturally like, all right, I'm okay with this. You know, this, this could probably be better, but it's done. Uh, You know, I, the whole purpose or, you know, the whole process is just like, I need to finish this piece, this one minute and 30 second piece of music, you know, as efficient, quickly and efficiently as possible and still have it be at a certain level. So definitely not being perfectionistic, perfectionistic about it. So that's been a good exercise, um, through the hundreds of pieces of music I've, I've made for that purpose. Uh, they're not, you know, I'm not, personally attached to them so I'm able to make them really quick sometimes three up to three pieces in a day and uh, doing that and the way some of those turn out when I'm just trying to blow through something and just get it done some of those turn out really good and they sound really good and that really just opened my eyes even more to like, you know, you're spending too much time deliberating on details that don't matter ultimately that much. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I find it a lot, it's much, much harder for me to work that fast with chalk dinosaur stuff because I do have personal attachment to it and I personal stake in it. But it's so interesting to see this, like, yeah, just that sometimes some really awesome stuff comes out in an hour and a half. And then I'll spend, you know, a lot of time working on a song for Chalk Dinosaur these days anyway. But anyway, I think... uh, it's really important if you're if you're getting into music production, songwriting is the same way with words. Well, let me talk about that for a second because I I've written a lot of songs songs with words over the past few years. I've been doing more instrumental music, but um, I definitely have a lot of experience writing songs with words. All my songs used to be based around lyrics and vocals, and uh, the same concept applied to that which was just get it down and don't don't beat yourself up or worry about it being good enough just get the ideas down and then uh then move on 
And remember, if this helps, this helps me sometimes when I'm like, ah, this idea, like I, I'm not totally happy with it. I think I could come up with something better. Just remember that you can go back at any time and rework these ideas. So just finish it. And if you are not satisfied and you come up with something better, go back and rework it. But what I've found for me is that I never, ever do that. Even with that, you know, that's what I, I would make that little deal with myself. Like, well, you know, if this turns into a really amazing idea or something like, uh, or I get some kind of, or, you know, I, what was I trying to say? If this idea feels like it, it's not living up to its potential, but I want to finish it so I can move on. I'll make the deal of like, well, okay, just finish it. And then you can go back and rework it if you want to. And I never do. Uh, it always turns out after some time has passed and it's the, the piece of music is no longer under the microscope of your attention. And you kind of, it kind of is less fresh in your mind and you go back and listen to it. And a lot of times it's like, it's good. It's preserved that way. And I, I almost never go back and rework things. Um, and, uh, what was I gonna say? Sorry about that. That was a weird sound I made there. If you could see the video, I, I made a weird face too. Yeah. I never, I never go back and rework these things. In fact, going back and going back and reworking them has been more of a challenge than making them in the first place. Because when you record something, when the idea is fresh and the idea is happening as you're recording it and you're on the cusp of this creative wave and you're capturing that energy, that there's an energy there that and a feel is really interesting that when I would go back and record a song later, you know, months later, I'd be like, oh, that was a good song. I'm going to record it again. Or, you know, I'm going to re-record it, quote, good this time, or like, quote, pro, or whatever. It might sound sonically cleaner or something, but there would be, I would like the demo better because the demo would have this this like intangible but very very uh very very evident energy and feel that the re-recording would lack it was so weird i just the energy wasn't there in the re-recording and that is why starting with my third album kitty hawk surf at that point i just stopped i stopped making demos because before my process was write the song, get a recording down, that'll be the demo, right? Because I didn't have a really great studio or knowledge of mixing or stuff. So I was like, well, I'll just I'll record the demo. I'll get the idea down and then I will re-record it better when I have more skill and better equipment. And what I found was that when I would do that, you know, I did, I invested in a nice microphone preamp, some better microphone, like, 
I more I had more experience and and was going to put more time into making a better recording and it never came out as much as like the energy just was missing from the from the original recording and I it was really frustrating so I just stopped making demos so I just started recording directly to what would be the completed project or the completed recording uh because I, I just got too frustrated with trying to recreate something I'd already created and then not being able to do it. And I, I eventually, I came to, it was almost hard for me to believe that some of these demos I made that were maybe not technically recorded as well or like on paper they shouldn't be as good but I liked them more. And it took me a while to accept that. Like, okay, these demos, I've been thinking of them as demos, but these are good. These are fine. These are like releasable pieces of music. They're valid the way they are. And uh, I released an album of these demos, songs that I was probably, you know, back in 2009 or 10, I would have tried to re-record all of them. But I know better now that something, if I really like a recording, I don't, I don't try and redo it just for the sake of redoing it. Uh, but there's an album called Unreleased. And it features all these demos that... I didn't really have any desire to rehash. Because I they all had the feeling of the time and the inspiration when they were recorded. And I know that if I tried to re-record them, it would be very time-consuming and I probably wouldn't be as happy with them as I am with the demos so I released them and you know what I love that album another thing Kitty Hawk Surf that, that was the same way and uh, I kind of had an aha moment where I kind of realized yeah that if, if I was putting way too much stock mentally into how they into the technical aspect of how something was recorded. So, this is an example. Kitty Hawk Surf. It's an album that I recorded with, uh, with the exception of one song. The other four songs were recorded with entirely one microphone. It was a $20 microphone from Radio Shack that, that had a, an eighth-inch jack on the end of it. It wasn't even like an XLR microphone. It was, it would plug directly into my computer. It was just one microphone for, I would hang it from the ceiling over the drum set to record the drums. And I just put it in front of the amps to record the bass and drums. And, uh, then I'd throw a multi-band compressor on all of the, all of those tracks in GarageBand because the output of the microphone was, was so low. I had to bring the, uh, the output up and I, I ended up really liking those recordings. It sounded like they, they sound like they're recorded on tape or something. And, uh, so I was probably a little bit torn about, well, I should re-record these because I have better means to do it now, but I didn't. I liked the way they sounded. They, they sound, it made them sound like more vintage or something. And, uh, they had character. So I just released it like that. But, you know, Earlier on, 
I I had this belief that, you know, like gear was magical and, you know, this wasn't a legitimate recording if I didn't record it on like good gear or something, or like, there's no way that this could be a viable recording if I didn't record it with, you know, this, if I didn't record it with top notch gear. And a lot of the, a lot of the recordings on the album unreleased uh, that I was talking about earlier. A lot of those songs were recorded with the same method with one microphone, the $20 microphone from Radio Shack that plugged directly into my computer, didn't even have an interface. And those are some of those are like some of my favorite recordings and it's the character of them. And if I re-recorded them all clean with my expensive gear now, it would it would just not be the same and I I would probably still prefer the original that was recorded with $20 piece of equipment. So if you like the way something sounds, don't doubt it just because it's, it wasn't recorded with something good. Technically good. And, and this could be the topic of a whole nother podcast. And it's, it's this gear fallacy where people, you know, have, have this thing in their mind where they think, you know, I can't make something professional quality with with the gear I have or without this really expensive piece of gear or without this really expensive instrument or something like that. And the longer I make music, the more I realize that that's just not true. It's uh, really, it just comes down to your ideas and uh, your ability to work with what you have with a computer. Okay. If you have a computer, even if you don't have a computer, but if you have a computer and a microphone and a way to get the sound from the microphone into the computer, you can make a professional recording. You can make a number one hit. Well, (laughs) I don't know about that because I don't, I'm not exactly sure what all goes into making a number one hit, like what kind of promotion and backing and like, yeah. Okay. I take that back, but you could make something on on the, uh, you could make a hit, something really, you know, you could make something on a professional level with very little. Because another thing I realized was, yes, the gear is important. The microphone has, has its own sonic signature. The microphone preamp has its own signature and like, those things really help a lot, especially if you're doing vocal things. If you have a microphone, good microphone and uh, a good microphone preamp or like a microphone preamp that has a interesting character to it, that's going to help. But you don't need it. You really don't need it because so much of the sound shaping comes in the mixing phase, which is something I didn't realize for a long time. And uh, I thought mixing was simply just balancing the volumes of all the different instruments and tracks, but it is way, way more than that. And I never, well, it took me a long time to realize that the mixing is what is responsible for so much of how something sounds. It's not the gear they use to record it. It's the mixing. So if, if you don't know that already, listen to that one more time. It's not the gear that you use to record the instruments and the song. It's the way you mix it. That's what's going to give you the end result 
of something sounding great or something sounding like bad. <laughs> like something that sounds really polished and professional. It's the mixing. It's not the gear they're using. And I did not understand that. I thought I needed, you know, a bunch of really expensive outboard gear and like, or I had to go to a studio with a Neve desk or something. And that stuff is going to help a lot, but it's way overvalued. Um, and people sometimes start to believe that they can't do something because they don't have access to that, but it's just not, that's not true. If you can have a clean recording, okay, if you can just get clean audio into your computer, clean as in, you know, no noise, like no, uh, clipping, like something you could do for like 200 bucks, um, you have everything you need. Uh, I'll probably do another episode and get more into other tools like on the computer to use like, uh, the same, the same kind of principle, you know, I don't know all these tools. They're all so incrementally helpful. Uh, when I was younger, I, I thought, you know, I was looking for magical pieces of gear that were going to make my stuff sound professional. And, uh, what I found was that every little, you know, or, you know, I got a, I got a microphone preamp. That was like the first major, major recording purchase I bought. It was a PreSonus ADL 600 tube microphone preampler preamplifier it's a uh, two channels so i was like all right now i'm gonna sound professional and while the recordings did sound cleaner or not cleaner more present you know there was definitely an improvement it wasn't like a magical now everything sounds amazing it was it was just a small increment and uh Every one of these little small increments adds up to the final sound. And, uh, you know, I found the same thing with, with uh, synthesizers, although it's a little more, it's a little more pronounced with uh, the synthesizers, the, the differences. Um, but again, if you have, if you have like a good software synthesizer, like Massive or, uh, serum which if you have it like on the platform splice where they sell samples and plugins and stuff i did a rent to own with serum so i was able to download and use that plugin serum and then i paid like 10 bucks a month or something until i had paid off that plugin and now i own it that, that's great i love that that's like that's such a great idea and and i appreciate uh, them doing that because to spend like 200 bucks on a, on a plugin is, is hard to stomach sometimes, but when you can spread it out and you're able to use the plugin while you're paying for it, it's, it makes it, it makes it so much better. And it makes me so much more willing to pay for things. Same thing with the, uh, slate plugins, the, um, Steven slate plugins, which is just, he specializes specializes in uh hardware emulations 
of, you know, classic gear, classic tape machines and compressors and stuff. And he does a subscription based thing. So 15 bucks a month and you get access to his entire, you know, plug-in library, which is awesome. I wish more companies did that because I have no problem paying for that. But if I was to buy all those plugins, I, that would be really difficult because <laughs> that would be really, really expensive. So this is a much more manageable way for me to like legally be using these tools. And then I feel better about, you know, I feel better about using them. I'm getting way off on a tangent here. Uh, oh yeah, I was talking about the synths. You can absolutely get just as good of a sound and like do everything that you're going to do with a hardware synth with Serum or Massive, I think. That's my opinion. Like if you know how to work those things good enough in the context of a mix, especially like you can hundred percent do everything you need to do within those. You, You don't need hardware synth. But the hardware synth, in my experience, what it does and the value it brings for me is that, one, the user interface is superior. So whether the sound is superior, that's very arguable. But the user interface is definitely superior. You know, being able to adjust the sound with your hands uh, having everything out right in front of you in the physical world and having that immediate feedback of, you know, changing a slider or a knob or flipping a switch or something and, and hearing what it does, that is very, very helpful. And that's one of the main differences between working in, you know, the hardware world versus the software world. Uh, and that's, that's like uh, the sound aside, you know, it, assuming the sound was equal, it's way worth it just for that. And then in terms of the sound, these hardware synthesizers, you know, they're much more limited than what you could do in, in Serum or Massive. Uh, they're very, very limited. You know, this one can only play one note at a time and it only has one oscillator and one envelope. But it's got its own tone, similar to how different guitars have different tones. It's got its own tone and it does, you know, it's got a much more limited range, but it does that range really well. And that's what I love about all the different hardware synths is that they all kind of have their own strength. Um, you know, their own weaknesses too, but they all kind of have usually like a couple things that they're really good at. And, uh, if you need that kind of tone, you can just go to, you know, you can get it real easy on some of these things like this Juno 60 back here. It's pretty limited. Like it's pretty limited. Uh, when you compare it to like the profit or the virus or something, it's pretty limited, but it does what it does so well. And it's so easy to get a good sound that uh, it's awesome. I love that one. That's that's definitely been my favorite. Um, and yeah, the the profit. 
it's not as automatically good sound as uh the juno like you you've got to dive a little you've got to like spend a little more time adjusting because there's a lot more adjustments you can make on that synth but there's definitely some really sweet spots in there and that's the thing with all these synths you've got to you got to spend time with them to find those sweet spots and uh like this Moog Minotaur over here this thing is the bass just sounds great on it there's nothing i it's just a sawtooth wave and a square wave same thing this synthesizer has same thing that synthesizer has same thing my other Moog has but it, that one's a little fatty yet this one sounds different uh and just like with the rest of these like that one doesn't do that many different kinds of sounds but the sounds that it does it does really well and that's really nice so you've got less options but better options and or i won't say better less options but all good options whereas with with the software you've got unlimited options but they're not all good so you've got to find the good stuff and you've got to dive a little deeper to find the sweet spots in whatever software you're working in i don't know what i'm even where i was even going with this I was talking about oh yeah output creative output yeah so as i was saying uh the more time you spend writing lyrics for a song the more words will come into your head how's that for a transition lyrics that's a very difficult thing for a lot of people and my advice and my approach is the same as what I had been talking about before. If you want to write more lyrics, make a little deal with yourself. Take the pressure off yourself to make something extraordinary. And just instead put your focus on just make a complete idea. So take your, you know, just try and write a couple verses that rhyme, that have a cadence that fits in into a song or something, or has a rhythm, and just try to just like rattle off verses and just try to think of verses that, you know, rhyme and don't worry at all about how good they are. That's the hardest part, but what you'll find is that the more you do that, the, the more easily the ideas will come, and then you will have good ideas. Uh, or ideas that you like. But you've got to get that wheel turning. And um, to do that, you've got to take the pressure away of making something really good. You know? You really just have to put that aside and just do it. And not worry about if it's good or bad. Because if you do that, you will come up with good stuff but just finish it and put yourself in the creative space where you're trying to mine those ideas where you're trying to be, where you're trying to open up your mind and like access those ideas. And the more you're in that place, the more ideas are going to come to you. And, uh, this happens all the time. Um, I've noticed it a lot actually when I, I'll like have a little, I'll like think of something f like for the purpose of being funny. Like I'll, I'll, I'll like start like a joke idea 
And so many times it like, uh, it ends up turning into a really good idea or like an, I, I won't say a really good idea, but like an idea that I really like something that starts out as a joke can turn into something actually that I really like. And I think a lot of that has to do with there being no pressure when you're making something to be a joke and you're not making something to try and make something amazing or like you don't have that pressure on yourself then the idea flows a lot easier. So that's what you got to do. Take the pressure off. Don't worry about if it's good or bad. Make something as a joke. That, you know, if you are really having a hard time getting the gears turning, literally just write anything for the song. Just make a complete idea. And then do it again. What's a complete idea? Well, that's kind of, you know, up to you to decide. What would a complete idea be? Well, on a minimum, if I'm trying to write a song, I'd probably say it has to have has to have a verse. It's gotta have a chorus. Then it's gotta have a second verse. Then you could even do less than that. But so if you wrote two verses and a chorus, you could make a complete song. So focus on doing that. And finish that without, you know, who cares if it's bad with that mentality. Just like, just do it and then do it again. And I think what you'll find is that it'll get easier. And you'll have a greater access or you'll have like a a wider, greater access to good ideas. The good ideas will come to you a lot easier. Where did I hear this? You know. I heard somebody make an analogy about this that was was pretty interesting, but also very accurate. Um, The topic was, you know, making, putting, spending time in the creative space uh, to be there to receive good ideas. So being an so if you're a writer, that means sitting down and writing. And just doing that, even if you don't feel inspired. And sitting down and doing that. Putting yourself in the space to capture good ideas. And if, and it's very important that, you know, you do that even when you don't feel inspired. Because a lot of times, it'll find you when you're in that space. But if you're not in the space, it won't find you. Um, and the the analogy was... So, say you're a man and you're uh let's see (laughs) how did it go okay so we'll call creativity some people refer to it as the muse or something like that okay you're waiting for the muse to find you and uh give you a good idea so the analogy was something like if you're a man, you picture the muse, you know, a good idea as a woman that, you know, you're interested in. Okay. And then imagine a bar as the creative space, the bar as in, you know, the creative space is in writing or trying to write a song or something. If, okay. And then, you know, you know that that woman, the muse is going to be going to the bar at some point over the next week 
but you don't know when. So the only way that you're going to catch her when she's there is if you are there. And you have to be there every day because you don't know when she's going to be there. And then when she does get there, if you're there, you'll see her and then you can meet her and then you can take her out for frozen bean treats. So I explained that very, very poorly, but maybe you'll understand. You've got to be there to receive the idea. You got to be there when the idea shows up. And if you're not, then it'll come and go and you'll never capture it. Anyway, that that little analogy, I forget who said that, but that was, that made a lot of sense to me. I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, who doesn't like frozen bean treats? <clears throat> all right. I think that's all I have to say about that now. Uh, I think I've just repeated the same thing for an hour. But this has been... Uh, I like talking about this stuff. Because uh, I actually feel like I... It's actually something I have experience with. Uh, so anyway... This has been PT with CD. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. And I hope that... I hope that... You know, I just started saying I hope that, but I, I didn't have a conclusion. I just started saying that and with no idea where I was going with it. I was going to try and just figure it out as I went. And, you know, I do that too much when I'm talking to people, I think. I start saying something, maybe because I'm uncomfortable with the silence or something like that. I just start saying something without a plan, and then sometimes it's a complete dead end. I'm just like, you know, uh, and then I'm like trying to find something to say quick enough, but it doesn't always happen. And that's what just happened right there. Because I don't know how to end this podcast. I also have a hard time beginning these because I don't know how to do it. But you know what? This ties into what we were talking about today, okay? Repetition. Repetition. Quantity is going to create quality here. Okay, so I just keep doing this. I'm sure I'm going to get more comfortable uh, beginning and ending these podcasts. So let me try again. Hope you've enjoyed the episode. Hope you have a great week. I'll see you later. See you later. See you later.